We're going to get into the sermon this morning, and we're going to be in Revelation. We're back in the book of Revelation. Um, I'm excited about it. We only have a few more weeks left in the book, but we'll be, this is week 22, and just a couple of just introductory notes about that. First of all, if you're just joining us um, on the live stream and you haven't been with us in the weeks prior in this sermon series back before the quarantine started. I just want to encourage you, I'm going to do some really quick kind of background stuff, but it's going to be really quick. And I just want to encourage you specifically to go back and listen to the first, at least the first few sermons um, in the Revelation series. I mean, really, it would be great if you could listen to the whole thing. Um, But I don't think anyone will be able to get that done this week because we're going to be doing this through the end of the book. So if you go back just to the first two sermons, um, there's some introduction stuff about my approach to the book, which will explain a lot of how I ended up here, because the chapter we're in this morning is probably the most argued about and has the most opinions than any other book in in any other chapter in Revelation, and maybe even the Bible. I mean, there even people who are not Christians and have never been to church quite often are at least vaguely familiar with the terminology and the ideas here because it's so been, it's been so popularized. And so we're going to talk about the, the thousand-year reign of Christ that's referred to, the millennium. Millennium just means a thousand years. Um, and so my interpretation of this book, and especially this section, is dependent on a couple of things. And I've told you this before, but this will be a good reminder for all of us, because it's been a few weeks, right? Um, there are two main issues that you have to kind of solve when you approach the book of Revelation, okay? The first is, is it symbolic or figurative? Is another way to put that. Or is it literal? Is everything in there literal, Okay. Um, and I don't, by literal, I don't mean we think it's important. I mean, like if I say I literally flew here, right? That's the example I like to give. Do I mean that I sprouted wings and flew like a bird? Or does it, do I mean figuratively I came here really quickly? Okay. That's what I mean. Okay. So is revelation literal or symbolic? I believe it's almost all symbolic or figurative prophetic language. Um, the second issue is what is the structure of the book? That's probably the most contentious part question, which is I have argued for what, what's called the recapitulation theory, which is that the entire book of Revelation covers the same basic ground in time, which is the church age, okay, the age in which we live right now, the time between when Jesus came and when Jesus is returning, okay? And it just repeats from different perspectives, okay? The analogy I've given you comes from Sam Storms, a great preacher and author, and he's written a lot on the book of Revelation, and he talks about like a football field. And if you set up cameras on the football field in different places, maybe one up at the 50-yard line are pretty close, another at one end zone far away, maybe you've got the blimp going over top, right? And if you depending on which camera view you watch the game from, you'll get a different, very different perspective on the game. And so over and over and over again in Revelation, we get different camera views or different perspectives on the same period of time. Okay. 
So it just means that it repeats. So in other words, the book of Revelation is not in exact chronological order start to finish. It goes and then it goes back and then it goes back and it goes back, giving you different information, different perspectives on the same thing. Okay. Um, and a third issue is kind of related to that, which is when is, is it? Okay. And obviously I would say that the when question is the church age. Some of it's early in the church age. Some of it's talking about the whole church age and some of it's talking about the end of the church age. Okay. But that's the general timeline. Okay. So we're talking about <clears throat> the millennium and or the thousand years. And there are three basic views on this. And I have, charts <laughs> for you to look at. These are in your notes and Owen's going to put them on the screen also. Um, and the terms that we use describe, just describe what the, what the theory is. You don't have to remember all these terms, but this will help you because I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this part because I want to get into the, the real meat and potatoes of it. But this is the stuff people argue about because I want to be able to kind of give you full disclosure about what I think so that you know where I'm coming from. Okay. The first one is called premillennialism or some people, and there's two types of premillennialism, um, post-tribulational or pre-tribulational. Some people call it historic premillennialism and dispensational premillennialism. Um, basically the idea here is uh, that Chapter 20 that we're going to read in just a second follows chronologically chapter 19. And it says that the thousand years that it mentions is a literal thousand years. So it's exactly a thousand years or close to it um, in time. And dispensational premillennialism, I believe, is faulty in many ways. That's the dispensational premillennialism is the the perspective that most of you are most familiar with that you've seen in like Tim LaHaye's books and the, the movies with Kirk Cameron. And I think Nicholas Cage did one too. Um, but where everybody gets raptured like out of their shoes and then everything goes terrible for seven years. And then Jesus comes back and then there's a thousand years of wonderfulness right on, on the earth. That's, dispensational premillennialism. I think, to be honest with you, it's a bad idea. If you're going to be a premillennialist, be a historic premillennialist, okay? Um, if you want to know more about that, there's a great, wonderful theologian named George Eldon Ladd that I really like a lot. He's a historic premillennialist. premillennialist. These words are hard to say, aren't they? Um, and so a lot of you are probably by default in that category, and that's okay. You can do that. I would encourage you towards if you're gonna if you're gonna choose a camp, if you're gonna choose that camp, go with historic. But that's that's that idea. Okay. Then we have postmillennialism. These are the um, the optimists in the church. Okay. Uh, they would say that Jesus returns at the close of the millennium, and we are living in the millennium right now. And the gospel. What happens is the gospel spreads in the church age, which we're in right now until the earth is transformed and society is transformed, culture is transformed, and that by itself brings peace for a thousand years, okay? 
In other words, things are going to get better and better and better and better and better because the gospel is going out and churches are being planted and people are getting saved. Eventually reaching a point where there's total perfect peace on the earth for a thousand years. Okay. Like I said, these are major optimists, right? And there are some really great scholars who believe that. Okay. I would say that premillennialism puts too much of the kingdom in the in the future, meaning we have to wait for everything. It's going to be terrible. It's going to be hard. And we have to wait for all the blessings of the kingdom of God until we die or Jesus comes back. Post-millennial millennialists tend to be too much kingdom now, which is like, it's going to be great now. Just wait. It's going to be fantastic. Right? And those people have a really hard time during seasons like this in the world, right? Where things are not great, right? They have, they get criticized a lot. The third view, number four on your chart, is called amillennialism, which that's where I'm at, maybe 75% sure of that, which is that the thousand years is figurative when it talks about that in chapter 20, and it's describing the church age we are in now, which we have that in common with the postmillennialists. But it does not mean amillennialism doesn't mean there's no millennium. That's an unfortunate term. It's not what that means. It just means that it's symbolic, which I think is consistent with my view of the rest of the book of Revelation. And that it started at the first coming, ends at the second coming, that the kingdom of God is both already, meaning now, and not yet. We have to wait. Okay? It's both. We have to wait for the big stuff, the fullness. I shouldn't say the big stuff. The fullness of the kingdom stuff, the kingdom blessings, but we do get to taste and experience it now. So what an amillennialist would say is that the kingdom of God is expanding. The kingdom, if you look, imagine a, a float, or not a float chart, a line graph. The kingdom of God is expanding all the time, growing and increasing, but it's largely hidden. It's a spiritual kingdom. And the world, persecution, calamity, difficulty, pestilence, right, is also increasing due to God's judgment and due to sin in the world, okay? So both are happening at the same time, right? That's what the amillennialists would say. So that's, amillennialism is pretty much my view. I don't want to be arrogant about that or too confident because it's, these are difficult scriptures to sort out, but that's more and more becoming my perspective. I have a tremendous amount of respect for the other views. I, ha I had friends growing up and teachers um, and mentors growing up that were dispensational, premillennialists, and it was it was like a hill they were willing to die on. Okay, it was like this is the timeline that's right. This is the line graph that's right. And if you don't believe this, you can't be a Christian, right? Or you might be a Christian, but you're pretty close to a heretic, and you can't be on our team if that's what you believe. And that's not what I would say. I think that's I think that's prideful and I think it's placing far too much emphasis on something that's not actually that clear. Okay? But that is my perspective. Alright. So let's actually look at the scripture. How about that? Revelation 20. We'll start with we'll do verses one through six. And here's what it says. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. <clears throat> and he seized the dragon, that would be Satan, 
the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Okay, so a couple of these images are going to be familiar to you if you've been following along so far in Revelation, or if you've read it or studied it before. Um, one of those is the, the serpent or the beast is Satan, the pit is hell, or you could say the, the, the supernatural world of the dead. Maybe that's one way you could put it. It's where evil is. It's where Satan resides. It's where his demons reside, right? It's the opposite of heaven, okay? These people that have not right worshipped the image, uh, the beast or his image, have mar the mark, his mark on their foreheads or their hands. We've talked about that before. That's just a way of delineating people who are followers of Christ and people who are not, okay? People who belong to the devil and him and those who belong to Christ and his kingdom, okay? If you have the mark of the beast, it means his name or his, uh, his ownership is written on you. And other places, Jesus or the Father writes his name on his people's foreheads as a as the opposite, right? Meaning, I own you. You belong to me. You have my identity. You are mine. You belong to me, right? That's a picture in Revelation. It's one way of describing Christians and non-Christians, okay? So this says that those who do not, are not, have not worshipped the devil, have not given him their allegiance, or we could say have not rejected Christ, those people are the ones that have the or don't have the mark on their foreheads, they come to life, okay? So what does all this mean? There's all this symbology, right? All this, I think it's obvious that this is figurative, okay? At no other point in the book of Revelation has the numbers of years or months or days been literal. It's always been symbolic of a period of time. Okay, so the point thing here is Satan is defeated, right? This is really good news. He's chained up, right? by this angel and thrown into a bottomless pit and the pit is covered up and he is bound and unable to do what he wants to do. That's the point of these verses. It's not the arguments over the timelines. The point of this is Satan is bound. Verse 3 says, why is he bound? He's bound so that he may not deceive the nations any longer. Okay, this is the limiting clause on that sentence, right? Satan is not bound, meaning he can't do anything, okay? doesn't mean he can't, he can't do anything to you, he can't tempt you, he can't lie to you, he can't lie about you. It just means he's bound for a specific reason. He's bound from being able to deceive the nations, okay? So I would say there's two senses in which Satan is bound. 
One, he cannot hinder the gospel or the spread of the gospel. Jesus' commission, remember that right before he ascended, right before he left, he gave us a commission to his disciples and through them to us. To do what? To go into the nations, bring the gospel, right? Make disciples of every nation and teach them what Jesus commanded, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, make disciples, right? That mission cannot be stopped by Satan. He is bound. He is bound from being able to stop that. Second sense is that he cannot destroy the church. The church is the missionary force of the kingdom of God. We are the tip of the spear in the kingdom of God. And he can't destroy us. He can harass us. He can lie about us. He can irritate us. But he can't stop us from doing the mission that God's called us to do. Satan is bound. Okay, so I would say Revelation 20 is actually taking us back to the resurrection in time. Okay? It's not chronological after chapter 19. It's going back, just recapitulating back to the resurrection and showing us what happened when Jesus rose from the dead. Is that when Jesus rose from the dead, Satan was bound. He no longer could deceive the nations. He could no longer blind them to the, to, to, to the truth of God's word. I mean, think about Israel before Jesus rose from the dead. God had put in her this deposit of the truth. He had entrusted her with this truth about who God really is, who the true God is, what his demands are, what his character is like, what it how you can relate to him, how you can worship him, how you can be in relationship with him. And the nations of the world had been blind to that truth. In fact, they had done the opposite of receiving that truth. They had tried to destroy them over and over and over again. And then Jesus comes, and at his resurrection, suddenly, you can see it historically, the blinders come off, and now Paul and the apostles and the church are able to go to places with the gospel that have never heard it before, that have been living around Israel for centuries, if not millennia, just mocking them and trying to destroy them, and suddenly they can see and the blinders are taken off. This is the story of the church. Is that everywhere the gospel goes, everywhere the church goes, the gospel is preached, the gospel is received, and churches are planted in the kingdom of God, expands and Satan can't stop it no matter what he tries. That's what I believe that means by Satan is bound. At the end of verse three, there's the odd scripture um, that says he'll be released for a little while. I think this probably refers to the battle of Armageddon, which I'm not going to redo. We did that right the last Sunday before quarantine started. If you missed that Sunday, go back, check that out. Um, that at the end, things are going to escalate, right, over time. We can see that throughout the book of Revelation. Think like the judgment of God, his pleas to people, please come, come out of Babylon into Zion, leave the kingdom of darkness, come into the kingdom of the sun, right? There's this plea, like things get worse, get harder and harder. Wickedness increases in the world. At the same time, the kingdom of God is increasing until we reach this point where there's a final conflict and Satan is ultimately finally defeated and put away. Okay. That's what I believe that's talking about, but not really sure. All right. So what's this thing about the first resurrection in verses four through five? Um, it's a bit of a word salad, as I like to say, 
if you read, th even when I was reading it, if you were like, oh, what? There's so many words, I don't know what they mean. Um, that's okay. Um, that's a pretty normal reaction to some of these verses. It's a, it's a word salad, okay? Um, you have basically two groups of people here, okay? Group one are those that have been beheaded for Jesus. Those are martyrs, okay? We also have in that group those that did not take the mark of the beast. As I told you, that's, a, that's just a symbolic way of saying Christian or follower of Christ. These are all Christians that have died faithfully in Christ, especially martyrs. Martyrs have a, play, a prime place in God's kingdom. Okay, <clears throat> So we have that group in group one. They get to take part in what he calls the first resurrection. I believe this is what happens to all believers when they die, when they die in this age, in the church age. Okay, We would call this the intermediate state. Okay, Jesus hasn't returned yet. So if you die right now, please don't, but if you die right now, you, you're immediately with, with Christ in heaven, okay? Your body's in the ground. Your physical body is in the ground. You, your spirit, is with Christ in heaven. That's the intermediate state. And you're with him. It's wonderful. It's glorious. And, but you're waiting for something. And what you're waiting for is the thing we're all waiting for. You're waiting for Jesus to return at the second coming, at which point you and your physical body will be reunited in, in a glorified state, which is hard to describe. Okay, Something like what we see described about how Jesus physically interacted with the world after his resurrection. Okay, That's what we mean by the intermediate state. So your friends, your loved ones that are died in Christ, that's them. They're in, that's what we mean when we say he's in heaven right now. What, what we mean is that's, that's the intermediate state. Okay, that's what I believe the first resurrection is. Okay? Um, group two in verses four and five is, are the people that stay dead, spiritually dead. Okay? Those are the people also in the intermediate state, but not with God in heaven. They are in hell or Hades, <clears throat> awaiting their judgment at the return of Christ. Okay, so everybody who dies right now is in one of two places heaven or hell, in heaven waiting for the second coming where there will be a judgment, but there will be, it's a joyful judgment, right? We'll get to that a little bit later. Waiting for Jesus to come back where they were reunited with their bodies, their physical bodies in a glorified state, and on into eternity we go together. Or you're in hell, intermediate state, waiting for the second coming where there will be a judgment, on into eternity and eternal punishment, okay? Those are the two groups we have in those verses. So the first resurrection is that resurrection into heaven in the intermediate state. Okay, The rest of you stay dead, as it were. Um, this is what we preach at every funeral of a Christian. Okay, These verses, we may not use these verses when we preach at a funeral because there's too much explanation required. right? But this is the theme, this is the idea, this is the basis in many ways of what we preach at the funeral of a Christian. As we say, they're with Christ. To be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. That's what we mean. As so we put their body in the ground, and we say goodbye, but we don't. it's not goodbye forever, right? We're going to see them again. Look at Revelation 20, verse 6. It says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. 
Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. This is what we say <clears throat> about those people that we love that are de- died in Christ. We would say they are priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him. They are reigning with Christ right now, right? I don't believe this thousand years is for only for the future. I think we're living in it right now, but it's a spiritual kingdom, right? Every saint that has died is now reigning with Christ, waiting and willing for his return when Jesus will finally judge the wicked and put away all sin and temptation and condemn Satan and his angels forever. So those optimistic post-millennialists that I mentioned earlier are right about at least, at least one thing, right? I'll grant you that one thing. The kingdom of God is growing and extending across the world every moment of every day. And the gospel is going out through the church and it cannot be stopped. Though wickedness and evil may abound in the world, the kingdom of God is still increasing and cannot be stopped. More and more people, let me put it this way, are being transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the sun every single day. People are being rescued from their sin in the darkest places in the world right now, despite the darkness. And it is effortless for God to do it. It is not hard for him. God doesn't have to resist evil. He just does what he's going to do because evil is no match for him. Okay. God accomplishes this through mercy and through judgment, both. We've seen that theme throughout the book of Revelation. At the same time, Revelation shows us that as the kingdom expands and grows and increases, the persecution and resistance from the world and from the devil is going to increase. Okay, All the way till the end, some people will harden their hearts against God's mercy as well as harden their hearts against his judgment. And those will choose who, who those people will choose to live in Babylon instead of Zion. That's the comparison we get in Revelation. So in that sense, wickedness and evil will also increase over time. And so when God is satisfied that all are coming that are coming in are in, all that He is called to be in His kingdom are in. And Babylon has had long enough to repent, right? That's another factor. He will return and he'll close up shop. That's what he'll do. Just like in the story of Noah and the flood, if you remember that story, it's not not so much a children's story if you think about it. The rain will come and the door is going to close on that great and dreadful day. That picture of the flood rising and the people outside and the people inside, those who have had the, the wisdom to recognize that what Noah was doing is from God and God was providing mercy are inside. That's the gospel. And those who have refused that mercy are outside and eventually that door is going to close. And so for those who are in the boat, that's a great day. Those who are not in the boat, it's a dreadful day. So don't harden your heart. That's the lesson. Don't harden your heart against God's judgments and against his mercy. So let me conclude with this, Isaiah 9, 2 through 7, a familiar scripture that I think looking at these verses in Revelation sheds some some new light on these 
verses, I think. So here's what it says. Isaiah 9, 2 through 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government or kingdom and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Jesus is the king of his kingdom right now. And that kingdom will not end and it will not shrink. It will only increase and grow. Why? Because Jesus is the one who's the king of it. The entire kingdom of God rests on his shoulders, not on yours. Not on our government, not on another foreign government, not on any human government. It rests on his shoulders. And because of that, it will increase and Satan can't stop it. So I want to encourage you to look at the world around you with spiritual eyes. And if you don't have spiritual eyes to look and see what God is doing, you'll think this is the most ridiculous thing anyone could say right now in this time. But this is why I wanted to preach this. Because we need to look with spiritual eyes and see what God is doing and not just natural eyes to see the, the, the way the, the economy is going and the way this health crisis is going and the way that people are so crazy, right? And the world is going, everything's gone sideways. You have to look at that with spiritual eyes. That the kingdom of God is expanding, not decreasing. The church is the primary engine by which it is advancing. The church meaning you and I. If you're a Christian, you're the church. We are the missionary force of the kingdom of God. Satan has been bound, and he cannot stop this from happening. Nothing he does can stop the gospel from going out and the gospel from being heard. If you're out there watching this and you've been rejecting God's mercy or reject or hardening your heart against his judgment in your life, Now's a really good time to stop that business, okay? <laughs> right now is a great time. Being with Jesus, as he says in Revelation, having his name written on you, his identity and his righteousness, as I said at the very beginning when we started this service, his, pure, his clean hands and his pure heart, having that written on you is worth any price you would have to pay. Any price. Whatever following Jesus might cost you, I promise you it is worth it. Whatever you perceive you will have to give up to follow him, it is worth it. And so for the rest of you who are already in Christ, you need to be encouraged. Okay? You are in the kingdom that is advancing and will continue to advance despite the wickedness in the world. You have a reason to hope. You have reason to rejoice. And what you see around you is not all that there is. What you see and taste and touch and feel around you and what the news says to you is not all that there is. Look with spiritual eyes.
It's only part of the story. The real story is hidden. The real story is that the kingdom of heaven is expanding and advancing all the time with Jesus at the helm. And you and I are a part of that reality. All that's left for you to do is to get to work using your gifts and your voice to do the work of the kingdom that he has given you to do. That's all that's left for us to do. So be encouraged this morning.